0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, welcome to the show where we rave and rant about what's working, what's not in stocks and markets. I'm Sherrod Kutin. with me Julian Ng. Our guest today is Nohisham Hussein, head of the Department of Economics and Capital Markets at the Employees Provident Fund. Today we assess Nagara Malaysia's latest measures to support the ringgit. Julian, where do we start?
1: So Hisham, uh, let's start with those uh, few important measures uh, that Bank Nagara has announced. But before that also, uh, I just want to get your view because you were at the Bank Nagara meeting. Are these measures a reflection of Bank Nagara's extreme worries about where the ringgit is heading?
2: I wouldn't call it extreme. I think their their primary concern, and I think their policy stand has always been about um, uh, containing volatility in the ringgit rather than what its level actually is. And their basic concern is that essentially the trading in the Ringgit is now divided into two markets. One's the onshore, the other one's the offshore. Uh, the Ringgit is not an internationalized currency. So the offshore trading is primarily in the NDF market, the non deliverable forwards market, and that's essentially global. The problem I think they see is that there's two separate sets of players involved here. The onshore market, we have uh, real economy guys, the, the exporters, the importers. We also have the onshore fund managers. We have the banks. So there's a lot of players. It's fairly liquid. But there's a bit of a balance in terms of buying and selling. I mean, exporters, and importers, they don't care where the ring it actually is. What they want to do is basically hedge their positions. The offshore market, however, is almost purely financial. Uh, it's involved with uh, essentially portfolio flows. So there's always this tendency, uh, especially since portfolio flows have been grown much, much larger over the last two decades, three decades or so, that uh, the financial flows might overwhelm what the real economy is actually doing in terms of uh, what the uh, ringgit trading is actually doing. Uh, so you've got a wedge between the offshore market and the onshore market, especially in the current circumstances where we see a lot of uh, strong ringgit, uh, sorry, strong dollar flows, and it's all heading one way. That's right. right? Um, the offshore market infects the onshore market, which infects the offshore market again. So there's a, this tendency to build up greater and greater volatility. So that, I, that's yeah.
1: interesting. And Bankingar has been trying to kind of fight against the tide uh, yeah. of what's happening in the offshore market with the, uh, a lot of persuasions about what to do with the NDF market. Right. Um, so one of the more, uh, I guess, prominent measures that were announced um, exporters are to retain only about 25% of export proceeds in foreign currency against uh, the allowance of 100% at present. What do you think of these measures? Because I guess the market is also taking a very critical view of Bank actions today. Yep. Are these measures uh, somewhat have that artificial feel and how does it tie in to the kind of requirements in industry and in right. practice today?
2: Well, um, it's not out of the norm. Uh, most countries actually apply a time limit in terms of export proceeds, uh, developing countries anyway. Um, um, ours is six months. I think uh, we have Indonesia's at 90 days, uh, Thailand's at six months. Um, so essentially, the, everybody wants people to bring back the export proceeds. I think w- what the problem that we have now is that uh, what we've seen over the last decade or so, there's been this gradual decrease in conversion of these export proceeds from U.S. dollars or whatever foreign currency they're in uh, into the, into ringgit. And essentially, what's going on here is that companies are almost speculating on on the ringgit uh, in that, in a sense uh, because they're not converting into ringgit. And Benagara would like to see that kind of financialization of of you know what's supposed to be a real economy. A concern into, well, going back to what it's supposed to be rather than, you know, corporates actually taking speculative positions mm-hmm. against the ringgit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I ask a question? You're saying speculation, but you're saying kind of inadvertently speculating on the ringgit, is it? Or is it actively as a source of income? And why are companies keeping their proceeds in the U.S. dollars? Is, it, is there some well, benefit
2: to them business-wise? It's perfectly rational. If you're seeing the volatility in the ringgit and you're seeing it uh, losing its value relative to the dollar, um, if you are getting U.S. dollar proceeds, I mean, it's perfectly understandable if you want to keep it in U.S. dollars. But you are taking uh, essentially a view against uh, your own currency in that sense. And, but as businesses, shouldn't they just do what is best for the bottom line for what is good for their company? Yeah, but then you have this this situation where the company's core business is no longer whatever they're making, but you know, uh, making money off Forex transactions, uh, which is not what they're supposed to be doing.
1: So do you think this is, uh, I guess, if you want to label it in uh, an extremity, would you say that this is a kind of financial repression where a certain regulatory authority sort of steps in and makes the decision yep. for the, the mm-hmm. corporates and the commercial entity?
2: Well, I, I don't think so, because um, when, when you talk about financial repression, there's a very specific meaning, actually. Um, it's essentially uh, ring-fencing uh, domestic financial resources into the government bond market to, to basically lower interest And this interest is not rate. that. Is and this isn't that. If you actually look at the other measures that Benagar announced, I mean, outside of the export proceeds, um, they're actually liberalization. Um, in effect, what Benagar is saying is, um, please come here and speculate. Just not too much because we're Malaysians. So, but you know, um, <laughs> no speculation, please. We're yeah, yeah, Malaysians, exactly. <laughs> but but no, know, nationalist <laughs> argument, is uh, yeah. But you know, if you look at the specific measures they actually they actually want to introduce, uh, they're actually introducing. I mean, they're effective today. Um, they're allowing uh, dynamic hedging. They're allowing active management of hedging onshore. Uh, with just a registration in Bank Negara or a declaration that you're not speculating, or um, it's it's essentially allowing um, basically meeting the the basic the, the criticism that they've 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 had over the last three weeks in that hedging onshore is difficult because of the regulatory requirements. So. A lot of the measures are actually aimed at making it easier to hedge onshore, actually make it easier to speculate onshore.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think there is a lot of concern on the streets about whether, uh, first of all, whether the ringgit is heading for a free fall, and secondly, whether this brings us back to 1998 when Dr. Mahathir imposed capital controls. Is this a kind of capital control?
2: No, it's not, because... uh, um, I would say that a lot of the measures that they announce actually go the other way. It's actually liberalization. It's actually making the rules easier. It's inviting more people onto the onshore market. I think we spoke last time about uh, how the domestic forex market really needs to be deeper and broader. I think this is a first step towards that direction. They're talking about a futures contract. Um, they're also um, allowing for... Uh, the development of uh, call and put options, I think. Uh, that That's part of the roadmap, I think. Um, so that will allow more sophisticated hedging techniques. It's too technical to get into, but, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the basic problem is that the forex market tends to have these episodes of overshooting. Uh, we've known that, and it's not a, a, a ringgit problem per se. It's also in the US dollar. It's also in uh, the yen. It's in every major currency is has overshooting problems. And what you want to do is to try and balance out the demand and supply for any given currency to make sure that it reflects our fundamentals and it reflects, properly reflects all the, the, the market views that are out there. When we had the segregation between the onshore and offshore market, um, you'd had this tendency that the offshore guys were a lot more negative and the onshore guys were, were more, more dominated by real flows. So we want to bring those two together to have a better market pricing for the ringgit, I think.
0: You're listening to our guest, uh, Nohisham Hussein, head of the Department of Economics and Capital Markets at the Employees Provident Fund. With me, Sherrod Kutton, is uh, Julian Ung. We'll be back with more BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, we continue with the SNM show. Our guest today is Nohisham Hussein, head of the Department of Economics and Capital Markets at the Employees Provident Fund. Because Julian, um, where do we go from that uh, explanation of the situation with regard to the ringgit? ringgit?
1: Yeah, I think I still want to pounce on the fears of our people at the moment, <laughs> <laughs> uh, myself included and uh, okay. with the immediate circle as well. Right. Um, going back to the idea of uh, capital controls, right? This is necessarily a bad thing. And under what circumstances would you say that capital controls are needed uh, and just want to help us? frame that thinking a little bit better
2: okay Um, there's actually a a bit of a sea change in terms of how the economics profession has looked at capital controls previously there was what we call the Washington consensus very liberal very free market minimum regulation but over the last, I think, decade or so, I think people have changed their minds about what the role of regulation is in markets. And one of those things is, is capital controls. Uh, the IMF came out with a paper, I think. They, they basically issued a position paper that said capital controls are okay, mm-hmm. uh, which is a huge turnaround for them, uh, considering that they have, for, for decades, they've been the ones who've been saying that capital controls have been bad. But, you know, from my point of view, the, the time to think about capital controls is when you're facing with inflows not when you're facing with outflows. By the time you're you're trying to manage outflows, capital controls are actually counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Uh, You want to restrict entry into your markets when there's an excessive interest in your economy uh, rather than the other way around. The way to manage vulnerability is, you know, prevention is better than cure. Uh, That's what Thailand did a few years back. That's what Korea did a few years back. Indonesia, they have uh, capital controls on inflows, not outflows. Uh, So that manages the volatility for them. Having said that, the basic problem with capital controls is that there's always ways around it. Mm -hmm. Uh, China has uh, fairly restrictive capital controls on their residents. And it has not stopped the outflows. People find ways around it when uh, right now there 's a quota on a per person basis in China, and one of the I think there was a report last week on um, the fact that the quotas are going to reset in January is going to cause a lot of pressure on the u n and you know they, they allow certain uh, outflows with respect to investments overseas and what we got was for example, you can buy insurance products overseas uh, from China, uh, what we got was is, uh, some Insurance agent in Hong Kong will swipe your credit card five hundred times. Yeah, uh, just you know, just to maximize uh, yeah. how the outflows that you can make.
1: I think and, in the last few years or so we saw stories about how the Chetias yeah. uh, would have this international network Correct. and allow you to take out money Correct. very easily.
2: Yeah, and we have a very similar system in the Islamic uh, moneylenders yeah. uh, um, system.
1: So globally. if we look back at the critique of the last few weeks in. Um, a lot of the market players clamoring for a kind of liberalization. Yep. Has Bank Negara actually addressed this? And I, I think um, key among those demands is the fact that you provide more liquidity to the market, but also uh, a suggestion that there is some form of unfettered trading of the ringgit. Right. Um, how does Bank Negara, uh, view this and how do they balance uh, these demands? I, I think they want to uh, uh, provide an orderly market.
2: Uh, I think that the, they are trying to address some of the criticisms uh, that it's difficult to hedge onshore, uh, that the, some of the requirements are are onerous, uh, especially if the market is moving, you don't want to be stuck you know, doing your documentation and sending it to Bank Negara and waiting for approval because you're going to lose money. Time is money. Uh, So they're allowing some flexibility, I think, for a lot of fund managers to come in onshore and do the hedging here uh, without having to go through uh, too many steps. Uh, You basically just all you have to do is
1: register Vanegara. Right, but the signal that was being sent out by these players is the fact that they... Want a free-for-all, uh, have they not considered the other aspects of the discussion? Like uh, what you say, that uh, the market is not broad enough yeah. and there could be these uh, speculative waves that are quite destabilizing. Well,
2: we're not, in, we're not New York. We're not London. Uh, we don't have that kind of breadth and liquidity yet. Yeah. Um, and it'll take time to develop that kind of capacity. And you can't expect that to happen overnight. I I think
1: what was very interesting was that uh, a few weeks ago, you were talking about how the Australian market managed their currency, which is the fact that they have outsourced currency management to the banks. And in fact, they have about one month of foreign exchange reserves, which is kind of alarming to me (laughs) if you really think about it. But why can't Malaysia have that kind of management?
2: Because it it takes time to develop. Uh, It takes time to to, to build up the capacity. Uh, It takes time for the the banks to build up the know-how. To actually do this. And the market participants themselves need to build up know how, uh, especially on a local level. Uh, it's not enough to say, oh, well, we, we want a free for all, because then, you know, I mean, markets cannot exist without regulation. The very most very basic part of it is property rights and enforcement of contracts. So these two have to; be, these fundamentals have to be there. Well, the, then argument, you have, uh, yeah. the
1: argument for free for all is that markets are self-correcting mechanisms, right? So if you yeah. let it go, while the ringgit, let's say, would go back to would go to let's say yeah. five or five and a half, yeah. but uh, savvy investors would see that and come back in the market to yeah. push the ringgit back up to its normal um, fair valuation. Fair valuation, yeah.
2: It goes back to well,
1: what's a fair valuation for the
2: ringgit. I mean, um, that, that's we know for the
1: market participants to decide. Right?
2: Yeah, the thing is, um, f- economic research has shown that uh, forex, especially the forex market, especially is prone to, ov- to episodes of overshooting, and these overshooting episodes take a long time. Typically, the U.S. dollar is either overvalued or undervalued ten years. Um, th- it's basically a ten-year cycle. It's only at fair value for infinitesimally small amounts of that time. So to say that the market actually self-corrects and actually gets to the uh, uh, fundamentally correct valuation for any currency is... is hopelessly incorrect. Mm. It just doesn't happen.
0: Okay, what about the question of the consequence? I mean, I assume that you know, global finance is yep. fairly, a fairly cynical uh, lot, you know, <laughs> uh, and, the, yeah. and the question <laughs> is, you know, it, are they going to be looking at these moves and saying, well, Malaysia's become unattractive, or, You know, we don't want to play with them anymore because they, you know, they keep changing the rules to benefit them. I mean, what is the, going to be the net result of these moves in terms of how Malaysia is perceived as a market uh, as a place to do business and such, yeah. I mean, is that something that we should be concerned
2: about? Well, I, I, I think there's some truth to that. Uh, I, a lot of people were upset, I think, over the the, especially after the Trump presidency, and they had difficulty actually uh, exiting Malaysia, um, and that might cause them to avoid us in the future. But the fact remains that Malaysia is still a fairly attractive destination for foreign investment, for, for foreign portfolio investment. We are a major economy within ASEAN and East Asia. You can't avoid us. But, you know, we have to look at the other side and go halfway towards accommodating them. But the issue now is that we've we've got this herd behavior across the whole globe where markets are being exited. That potentially could cause damage on a real economy basis, and that's something we'd like to avoid.
1: I guess the patronage of the FDI people, right, are who you want to appease. And uh, even local investors, not not only FDIs, but local as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do these kind of rules make them want to set up operations overseas, for example, in more liberated regimes? Well, they do that anyway. Uh,
2: so, I, I, you know, I think there's there's some thought that you know the global financial architecture needs reform. I think there's a, a, a bigger and bigger consensus that something has to be done. I mean, it's not just within the, the financial markets. You're talking about tax systems. Uh, you're talking about uh, apart from foreign exchange about the the movements of portfolio capital around the world of FDI, because the the highest recipients of FDI outside you know real economies are the tax havens. Um, and that's you know, some, a problem that affects all economies, not just uh, uh, Malaysia. Forex is obviously one of them, um, but it's a multilateral effort. That has to be done, like I said before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not something that can be the you know a single country can do on its own.
1: And it's also the case with Malaysia's competitors for FDI, yep. uh, having also the same kind of rules and regulations. So yep. so that it's not uh, really an alternative to set up. Say, uh, I, I think Malaysia to Vietnam is a kind of a lateral move, yep. uh, arguably. Well, I mean, well, well oh, not uh, not quite, <laughs> but arguably. But you don't yeah. see FDI. Um, company deciding between malaysia and let 's say london right yeah that 's not that yeah.
2: 's not that 's not where we 're competing in yeah we 're not even competing with vietnam it's, we were at different market levels so it's, uh, I, I think a lot of uh, the traction of Malaysia really goes back to you know the fact that our infrastructure is relatively good, that we have a decent educated workforce. We have good transportation links. We're right on the global trade routes. Uh, and those are all big positives that that nobody ignores.
0: Can I come back to the question of volatility? You're saying yeah. that the, the measures are about addressing volatility, not the value of the ringgit. Correct. Um, these measures, now that they've been put in place, uh, are they going to be permanent? The objective is, then. Ne- yeah. you know, I imagine it's going to be a permanent solution yes. rather than a temporary one. Yeah.
2: Correct, correct. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's definitely permanent. Having said that, I, I wouldn't rule out further liberalization. Uh, once we build up capacity uh, as well as the breadth and depth of the market here, uh, we can afford to actually liberalize further. Uh, but w- we need to have that capability first, and, and that will take time. I, I see these measures as essentially uh, medium to long term aimed at developing the local forex market rather than addressing ringgit weakness right now because it really doesn't address ringgit weakness right now. So where do you see the ringgit going? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, the forex markets are one of the hardest markets to actually forecast. Um, bond markets are easy by comparison. Uh, I would say that we're headed into a potential reversal of the U.S. dollar because essentially this is a U.S. dollar story. And you know, the level of the U.S. dollar right now is really painful for the U.S. economy. At some stage, you'll have to come back. Uh, What they did, uh, one example is what they did in the 1980s was that there was a concerted multilateral effort to sell the U.S. dollar that was headed by the Americans. Uh, They called it the Plaza Accord. Mm. Uh, And it was a concerted intervention by both the American Central Bank, the Japanese Central Bank, and the German Central Bank to actually sell uh, the U.S. dollar. And that actually created, I think, a 10-year bear market for U.S. dollar assets. It's potentially something that we could be looking at again uh, I don't see that the much appetite for intervention on that scale anymore uh, but it's something that might happen on its own one is that we know the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates uh, over the next I don't know, year or two Uh, They might not raise it very far, but they are raising interest rates. That will have uh, a capping effect on U.S. economic growth and and the growth of U.S. uh, uh, earnings growth in U.S. assets. And eventually the market will come back and look at emerging markets again. There is a lot of savings out there that's looking for uh, a home. People are competing for yield. And uh, the fundamentals of the Malaysian economy are still pretty good. And we've got fairly decent interest rates. I mean, the reason why they came here in the first place was because of the yield pickup difference. Mm. You know, there will be, uh, I think, a reversal. And I think it will happen within the next year or two.
0: Thank you very much. That was our guest, Nohisham Hussain, head of the Department of Economics and Capital Markets at the Employees Provident Fund, or EPF. With me, uh, Julian, and I'm Sherrod Kutin.